how great it is to be reminded of the excellencies of Jesus. How great it is to be reminded that he indeed is, is more beautiful than anything we can encounter. Thank you for those who have led us in that song. And encourage all of us now at this time to, uh, to get your Bibles. Grab your Bibles from wherever they are. If you did not bring one uh, with you today, I encourage you to get a Bible provided in the chair in front of you. Let's open to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Um, we'll be reading from verse 17 to verse 38. Uh, I want to remind you that this is the third time uh, I am speaking and preaching on this passage in a row. And this is a third of five times, uh, three of, of five sermons from this passage. We are currently going through the book of Acts, uh, going passage by passage. And when we arrive at chapter 20 in this particular passage, we are going to camp out here for about five weeks. Um, here's the word of the Lord for us this morning as we await and expect God to speak to us. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his, with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now, I commend you to the God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak 
and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Let's ask the Spirit of God to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Oh, Lord, we thank you that indeed you have blessed us by your grace. Father, we thank you that indeed your grace was manifested not only in Christ and the redemption he provided for us, but also in the revelation of your word to us. We pray that you would speak to our hearts through the power and through the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit among us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, friends, for those of you who are for the first time with us, it might surprise you that we have been going through the book of Acts um, text by text. This is the 50-some sermon uh, in this series, but it is the third sermon in this passage. Um, the first sermon was about what the church is. Last week and today, we're going to talk about um, what the distinct message of the Christian church is. Next week and the week after, we will talk about the leadership of the church. Who is called to lead the church and what are they called to do? This morning, I want to really follow up and continue the second half of the sermon on the distinct message of the Christian church. The distinct message of the Christian church. We saw how in this passage, when Paul calls the elders in Ephesus to come to him, he's giving them instructions about how they should lead the congregation, what they should do. And we saw how in this passage, a, a big part of what he's communicating to them is actually his own testimony of what he did in Ephesus as a pastor, as an evangelist, as one who was among them for three years. And, and so we're looking at, at, his, Paul, at Paul's own self-testimony. And we see that so much about what he says about himself has to do with teaching, what he taught. So last week and today, we want to look at the distinct message of the Christian church as it is described and summarized by Paul in this speech he gives to the elders of Ephesus. Last week, I mentioned and introduced that there are eight characteristics of this distinct message of the Christian church. And last week, we looked at the first three of those characteristics. And the first one was that a distinct message of the Christian church involves oral proclamation. It involves actual speaking, actual declaration, actual using of words, testifying, admonishing. It's not just about living the Christian life and being, live, showing to be a Christian by the way you live, but also by speaking it. Both together are important. The second truth we looked at last week, and this is just a review, is that the distinct message of the Christian church is taught in public and in private. This is what Paul did. He taught and declared God's Word both in public and in private. The third characteristic that we looked at last week is that the distinct message of the Christian church calls for repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That it's not just faith in Jesus, 
but also repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Both together are two sides of the same coin, and we cannot separate those. And the response to the gospel must be made clear. We, when we speak to people about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must testify to them of the response this good news calls for. Well, those are the first point, three points that I spoke about last week. Today, let's continue with point four. What, what is another characteristic about the distinct message of the Christian faith? Number four, and if you like taking notes, number four is this. It is about the gospel of the grace of God. It's about the gospel of the grace of God. Would you look at verse 24 in the passage we've read? Paul says, in the context of him not knowing what will happen to his own life as he's going to Jerusalem, as the Spirit is warning him that trials, imprisonment, chains are waiting him, Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Wow, what a beautiful, what a beautiful statement of, of, way, of a way Paul looks at his, at his own life. But then he goes on and says, if only... If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord. What is that ministry? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is what the Lord has called Paul to do as he's planting churches. This is how the gospel in Ephesus came in. And this is how the church in Ephesus was birthed. Because this man, Paul, testified to the gospel of the grace of God. Friends, a church can talk about many things. But if it does not make clear the gospel of the grace of God, offered to rebellious sinners, that church has lost its cutting edge. That church has lost its distinction. Today, churches find to try, find, uh, try to find something unique about them. Each church tries to, tries to, to portray themselves in, in very unique ways from other churches or other institutions. Friends, let me break down this to you. Um, the most unique thing about any Christian church, if it's a true Christian church, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that any other organization on planet Earth no other organization can actually and has been entrusted with this gospel than the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the most unique thing we can, we can make sure people understand about us as a church is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Nothing else. And if you feel like there's something else that we could add to that uniqueness, we misplace the centrality of the gospel of the grace of God in the life of the congregation. That is why... It's such a pity when members of a Christian church stutter when asked the question, what is the gospel? Friends, you'd be amazed how many Christians stutter when they have to answer that question. It's such a shame and such a pity that the one most distinct thing, the, the one unique thing about the church the gospel of the grace of God. That is what members of the church stutter in declaring and answering. And that's why we have made it a point here at Parkhills Baptist Church. We will not that, let that happen. 
we, as, as, as you are part of this congregation, others, if you're visiting us, the one thing that we try to make very clear, we want to make sure that even before you become a member, you're able to answer this question, what is the gospel? We want to make sure you understand that. But it's not just about members stuttering in, in responding to the gospel. Of what is the gospel? The grace of God. It's also preachers who have put it to the sidelines, preferring to talk about anything else except the gospel of the grace of God. And we assume members to know it. Or churches may try to grow by some other means or programs apart from declaring the gospel of the grace of God, apart from teaching the gospel of the grace of God. We want to grow in many other means. And, and, and here at Parkers Baptist Church, we want to bring the centrality of the gospel to be the means by which God grows us. Friend, I want to ask you, do you know the gospel of the grace of God? Could you explain it? Yesterday, I was in a pastor search committee, um, a council, and uh, the question I asked the pastor to be ordained was, could you give us a gospel in 60 seconds? I wonder if you know the gospel and are able to, to, to understand it and even say it in a succinct way. In a very brief way, brothers and sisters, and those of you who are perhaps, you have heard about Christianity, you may have attended Christian churches for a long time, but you are having a hard time thinking about what is the gospel and how to answer that. In a brief way, the gospel is a message of God's salvation. It's a message about God, the creator of heavens and earth, the one who owns all things and owns everything around us, and us included. He's a perfect and holy God. But we, his creation, have rebelled against him. And because he's perfect and just, we have triggered his just, righteous judgment against all rebellion, against us included. And because of that, we deserve his wrath. But God, in his mercy and grace, found a solution for rebels like us. He sent his son Jesus so that he, Jesus, would pay the penalty of our rebellion so that through his death and through his resurrection, rebellious sinners like us could be restored back to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus so that all those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, can be restored back to God, be brought back into fellowship with God, and be brought into the kingdom of God, so that God now offers forgiveness of sins to all those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. And this is the good news of the gospel. I wonder if you've heard it that way, or some other way in, in this kind of direction. And I wonder if someone called you to repent. If you've never been called to repent upon and, and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to call on you today, right now, do that. If you'd like to know more about that, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But know this, that without that re response of repentance and faith, your knowledge about the gospel, your knowledge about the church and Christianity has no value apart from you responding to this gospel. Friend, but notice something about this gospel, the way Paul describes it. There's an interesting detail. Look at verse 24. This gospel of the grace of God. It's a gospel of the grace of God. What does that mean? 
What does it mean that's the gospel of the grace of God? In other parts of Scripture, we read that it's a gospel of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ or the gospel of the kingdom. But here it speaks of the gospel as being the gospel of the grace of God. What does that mean, the grace of God? Well, it means that it is God's unmerited favor. When we typically think about the grace of God, the first thing that comes to our mind is free, right? When you think about the grace of God, freely given. And it's true, God's grace, I mean the grace of God, makes the gospel free for us. But friends, it's way more than free. As a matter of fact, if, if all you think about the grace of God is as that which is free, you're actually missing out on really what God's grace is about. It's not about free stuff, although it includes it. It's more than that. And, and to help you illustrate and help you see the difference, what I'm, uh, what I'm trying to say is, think about a credit card company. For instance, if you've been a loyal customer with a credit card company, you may get some free gift because you've been a loyal customer for a long time with that company. It's a free gift. Or you might receive a, a free gift in the mail um, because you've been on someone's mailing list. You are the recipient of a free gift. Is that grace? No. It could be in some way, but in, in, when we think about God's grace, it's not. Because a credit card company, when they send you their gift, it's because you've been a loyal customer. You deserve that. They want to they wanna, they wanna give that gift to you freely because you really, you've been good. But God's grace is not just about free stuff. It's God's grace is unmerited free stuff, unmerited favor. To unpack this further, God's grace is not God's free gift because you've been a loyal customer. No, God's grace is God's free gift to those who deserved his wrath. So that when we think about the grace of God, it's not just the freeness that should grasp our hearts. It's the fact that we don't deserve it. As a matter of fact, we deserve the opposite. We deserve God's punishment, and yet God gave us his favor. We deserve to be separated from God forever, for all eternity. And instead, through Christ, God gives us adoption. God gives us his inheritance. God gives us his free gift to those who deserve the opposite. So when we think about the grace of God, we should not just think about freeness. We should think about unmeritedness. That's why, dear friends, the gospel of the grace of God first humbles us before it can save us. The gospel of the grace of God is something that reminds us of that which we did not deserve. Actually, the gospel of the grace of God must humble us first before it can save us. Otherwise, we think that we get the grace of God because, because we deserve it or because somehow God owes it to us to save us. 
Today, people want a gospel that is built on man's self-esteem. The grace of God, who is given to us because God finds us so precious in His sight. Oh, no, friends. God gives us His grace, not because we're precious in His sight. God gives us His grace, despite the fact that we deserve His wrath. We want a gospel that builds up self-esteem. We don't want to speak about in the gospel to include this idea that man is corrupt, that man deserves God's judgment. But the grace of God tears down man's sinful self-esteem and reminds us that the gospel of God is a gift that none of us deserved. None of us. And yet, God offers it. Man sometimes ponders if it's worth responding to the gospel call. A man sometimes in his sinfulness may, may say, well, I have time later to do this. I don't need to deal with this now. I got some better things to worry about in this season of my life. Sometimes I've heard even Christians be tempted with this thought of whether or not they should have responded to the call of Christianity later in life so they could enjoy more of life. Friends, thinking this way shows that we have still not understood the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel is something none of us deserve, yet it is offered freely to all. If someone wonders if the gospel is worth responding to, that means they're still not understanding how undeserving they are to that gospel. We still have not understood how we deserve the opposite of the gospel. Such a gospel must first must first humble us before it can grip us. So when people ask today whether or not the call of the gospel is worth it, I pray that they come to see how unworthy they are. If we are tempted with thoughts of whether or not the gospel is worth our life, I pray that we would see first and foremost how unworthy we are before God to receive that gospel. This is a message that Paul testified in, in Ephesus the gospel of the grace of God. It's unmerited. Second of all, another, or this is really point five. It's my second point in, in today's sermon, but it's point five in the, in the list of characteristics. The distinct message of the Christian church is about the kingdom of God. Look at verse 25. It's about the kingdom of God. Paul says, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. Notice now that everything Paul said so far, he spoke about the gospel of the grace of God. He spoke about the call, testifying about repentance and faith. But now he, he describes the same message through this picture of the kingdom. Yes, everything that Paul has spoken about, he could also summarize in this one phrase, proclaiming the kingdom. This means that the gospel of the grace of God is about the kingdom of God. How do people enter into that kingdom? By repenting toward God and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself linked the message between the kingdom and repentance. It began with Jesus. In Mark 1.14, it says that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent 
and believe in the gospel. You see, the message about the kingdom of God is linked with a message about repentance. The way people enter into that kingdom is by repenting and believing. The gospel of the grace of God does not just offer us forgiveness of sin and leaves us to ourselves. It is a forgiveness that brings us under the reign of God. Uh, the alternative of remaining unforgiven leaves us under the wrath of God. But when the gospel of the grace of God is offered to us and we respond to it, we become part of the kingdom of God. Friends, we cannot separate the gospel from the kingship of God, from his reign. We cannot do that. This means that we cannot have Christ only as our Savior, but not as our King or Lord. There's been a false teaching that has separated that in the 1970s. We cannot separate Christ to be only our Savior, but not our King. When we receive Christ, we receive Him holistically. Therefore, to receive Christ means to receive God's reign in our lives as well. The implication for, of, of this is that Paul's message about the kingdom of God is what produced the church in Ephesus. The one place, the one place where the rule of God should be most visible and most visibly seen on earth is the church. The place, the one place where the rule of God is seen most visibly on earth is in those sinners who have been granted forgiveness and who have, been repent, who have repented of their sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The one place where the reign of God is most visibly seen on earth on this side of eternity is the local church. You understand why when a Christian blatantly sins against the Lord and stubbornly remains in that sin even after being admonished to turn away and, and, and follow Christ. When a Christian does that, refuses to repent of their sin, it is such an insult on God himself and it is such a false advertising about what the reign of God really means and how it's really displayed. The church is the only place on planet earth where the kingdom of God is made visible on this side of eternity, the one place where people should see practically, hands-on, the dynamics of the reign of God among people. That's why, friends, how we live as Christians matters. How we live as, as bound-together people under Christ our King speaks volumes about the kingdom of God in this present age. That's why we care about the life of the church. Because it speaks what the gospel produces in those who respond to it. No wonder that Paul describes his teaching ministry in Ephesus as going about proclaiming the kingdom. The life of the kingdom of God is displayed through the church in this age as a foretaste of the age to come. The sixth characteristic, the sixth characteristic about the distinct message of the Christian church is that it should include the whole counsel of God. It should include the whole counsel of God. Look at 
verse 26 and 27. Paul says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Why is Paul declaring himself to be innocent of their blood? And by the way, what a beautiful picture. I will talk more about this in the next two sermons. But why is Paul declaring himself to be innocent of their blood? Because he could say that he has declared to them the whole counsel of God. Failing to declare to them the whole counsel of God would have made Paul in, uh, guilty of their blood. The background of that passage, of that concept, goes to Ezekiel chapter 33. Go home and read that to understand why would a preacher of the gospel be considered guilty of the blood of his listeners if he does not declare the whole counsel of God. But here Paul says, I am innocent because I have taught you the whole counsel of God. Oh, friends, if the message of the Christian church is about the reign of God, not just in the future but in the present, then every decree of this king is worth to be declared and communicated to humanity. We live at a time when uh, we like to pick and choose what we want to hear. We subscribe to various news venues. We have even in our computers bookmarks and uh, RSS feeds that feed us with the kind of news we like to hear and stay up with. So we like to choose what we hear. And we often bring that kind of choice of selection to the Bible. And that's very dangerous. Because when it comes to the Bible, it's actually very dangerous to choose what you want to hear and what you want to leave away. And it's very easy also for preachers and they feel tempted because of the, of the fear of, of either rejection or people leaving or people rising up and, and, and creating a, a tumult. Uh, preachers might feel intimidated to only preach the things that will be accepted and leave aside or de-emphasize or not talk much about the things that are hard to hear. And therefore, some preachers shrink back. But here Paul says, not Paul, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now it's true that some truths of the Bible are more foundational than others. They're more essential than others. But that does not mean that the less essential truths are unimportant. We should not have only two categories, essential and not important, when it comes to the Bible. There are some essential truths about the deity of Christ, about the virgin birth of Christ, about the atonement, about the uh, doctrine of election, about the doctrine of God's sovereignty, about the doctrine of man's responsibility, about hell and judgment, and all those things about the gospel. There are certain things about that are absolutely foundational. But that doesn't mean that the rest are unimportant. They are very important, even though they may not be foundational. That's a better category of how we may approach the Word of God. The entire counsel of God, therefore, must be proclaimed. The entire counsel of God must be heard and studied. Friend, let me ask you this. Do you tend to be a minimalist when it comes to God's Word? What do I mean by that? Do you say, just let me know the bare minimum to be saved, and that's enough for me? And do you use that as an excuse for growing God's truth and God's knowledge? Friends, such an attitude is very unhealthy spiritually. If Paul had this burden that 
to declare the whole counsel of God makes him unguilty versus failing to declare that makes him guilty, then what does that say about the importance of the whole counsel of God for the people of God? Just think about that. The distinct message of the Christian church should include the whole counsel of God. Paul's commitment to declare the whole counsel should alert us of the importance we should give to all that God has revealed to us in his scriptures. Point number seven, about the distinct message of the Christian church. The distinct message of the Christian church admonishes us, admonishes us. Look at verse 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that, e that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Now, the verb to admonish means to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct, to warn and to instruct. Now, let me put this in perspective for us. We all like to hear about the grace of God. You, we all like to have a preacher that just speaks about the grace of God. Would you also like to have a preacher that speaks about admonishing us in the things we need to be instructed or changing or needing to work on? You see, sometimes we want to prefer between one or the other. But notice how Paul here does both. He says, for three years, night and day, he has been admonishing these people with tears. Would you have liked to be a member of the church of Ephesus during Paul's pastorate? When he was carrying out his shepherding by admonishing night and day with tears? You see, it fits, it's, it's all in one package. The same Paul who spoke about the grace of God speaks about admonishment here. An important part of the distinct message of the Christian church is warning and admonishing. Warning the unbelievers of the wrath to come. Warning believers of the traps of sin and ungodliness. You see, this Paul, Paul did this not just in Ephesus. He spoke about it in Colossians 1.28, which, by the way, is our theme verse for our mission statement as a church. Paul says in, in Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim. Him, Christ, we proclaim. And then he goes on and says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see, the teaching about the grace of God, the teaching about the gospel is not opposed to admonishing and warning. It's not opposed to the, to the call to respond and change our course of life. Titus 2. 11. Write this reference down. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this pres present age. The same grace of God. The admonishment present in Paul's ministry is part of the distinct message of the Christian church. I wonder, do churches today still give admonishments and warnings? Is there a place for admonishing and for warnings in the Christian message today? Should there be a place for that in our church? If there was a place for that in Paul's teaching, not just publicly but privately as well, why do so many churches, why do so many Christians have a hard time with it? Friends, are we a church where giving admonishment towards one another is acceptable? 
Or is it weird or unusual when it happens? Lastly, the last point about the eighth characteristic of the distinct message of the Christian church is that it not only admonishes us, it's profitable. It's profitable. Look at verse 20. Go back all the way to the very beginning. I left this point the last. This is the one that with, which, with, with which Paul began his list of describing the distinct message of the Christian church. Paul says in verse 20, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Oh, what an encouragement this is. That the distinct message of the Christian church, which must be proclaimed and taught both in public and in private, the message that calls people to repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel of the grace of God, the message about the kingdom of God is a message that includes the whole counsel of God. It's a message that admonishes us. It's a message that is profitable for us. How great it is to hear that. It is profitable. In other words, to translate that phrase, it is for your advantage. It is for your advantage. But notice a puzzling expression. Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Why this awkward phrase? Because there are times the, thing, the things that often are for our advantage we may not like to hear. And that's so true spiritually. It is because they're profitable for us spiritually, and, and it may challenge us to be th doing things differently that we don't want to hear that. Even as a church, sometimes we may need an admonishment to, to think about certain things differently from, based on God's Word, and we don't want to hear that. And yet, Paul says, it is profitable. It is to your advantage. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproving. Uh, it's profitable for correction. It's profitable for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Oh, friends, if we were convinced that the full revelation of God is profitable for us, if we came to any opportunity of reading God's Word and, and meeting together, when we came to Sunday mornings, when we gathered together, if we would gather with this conviction, God's Word is profitable for us to hear. It is profitable for us to study it in Sunday school classes. It is profitable for us to hear it declared. It is profitable for us to read it on our own or read it one-on-one -on -one with another believer or read it one-on-one -on -one with an unbeliever. It is profitable. May our congregation be the kind of church that understands this characteristic. It is profitable for us to hear the whole counsel of God. What are eight characteristics of the distinct message of the Christian church? Let me run through these again. It involves oral proclamation. It is taught both in public and in private. It testifies of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is about the gospel of the grace of God. It proclaims the kingdom of God. It includes the whole counsel of God. It admonishes us. Finally, it is profitable for us. May we be a church that communicates clearly, in plain words, the distinct message of the Christian gospel.
May we be a people who love hearing the distinct message of the Christian church. May the spiritual leaders of the church be committed constantly to guard and protect the distinct message of the Christian church. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that even in seeing Paul's testimony and hearing it as he labored for three years in Ephesus, Father, thank you that in the midst of that testimony, you give us such a rich picture of how the truth that Paul spoke, how he described it for us, and how we should emulate these characteristics. Lord, we pray with, with the distinct message of the Christian church, the distinct message which you have entrusted to the prophets and the apostles, would that continue to be proclaimed by us here, the people at Park Hills Baptist Church. May this distinct message of the Christian church continue to be proclaimed and heralded from this pulpit and from the lives of the people in this congregation. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.